Hello, citizens of the People's Game. We are back in business after a temporary hiatus. And true to the time of year and happenings on the weekend, Gordon and I are sat at the beautiful, well, beautiful now, Victoria Park on a quiet Wednesday morning watching a dog play with a rather large red ball to talk about the latest happenings in the sporting world. Gordon, how have you been? Had a little bit of a break, you and me. Yeah, yeah, you went on a a little uh, summer hiatus. Wet season hiatus. Wet season hiatus to go find the wet season. Ironically, it all happened down here in Melbourne as it, as it is its want. I wanted to bring you up on that. Uh, you said that we're in the glorious, you know, the, the beautiful surrounds of Victoria Park. And apologise for any ambient noise or JB's echoing bellowing. But uh, uh, you also said off air that it was a bit gentrified for you. You preferred the good mm-hmm. old days of no set, no you know, no shelter, no comfortable seats. What, what do you what do you actually want? Like, what, do you want do you want footy and cricket to come back to these grounds, or do you prefer them to be like? historical relics i mean and that is so i obviously background to this to anyone that didn't see the aflw on the weekend was that melbourne and collingwood played here which was the first afl game aflw game here obviously collingwood's vfl game our team has been playing here again for the last sort of four or five years um but i rang dad and he sort of said to me um talking about it said oh what like what a horrible place it used to be when richmond would come here jack tyre would talk about the fact that the showers would always be cold there'd be no coat hooks on the wall this was great so you'd go to hang your suit up in near darkness because they take the good light bulbs out so you could barely fucking see what you were doing and you're obviously obviously your suit would end up all over the floor and the floor would be filthy um and then obviously here it was obviously a fairly hostile crowd um so when i say it's gentrified it's mainly because there are commission flats over to our right Mm -hmm. um just behind the sharon stand and you can hear the trains going past um but there's an awful lot of sort of new age apartment buildings i don't know what that monument on the hill is that black and white thing and that's bloody a bit new age art and then yeah all of these look at these modern apartment buildings um and i guess the feel of uh, a few people traipsing around walking their dogs in lululemon doesn't really smack of hostile collingwood crowd from across the creek oh so it's not about like the stadium itself or the ground itself but uh, more about the people that now live in the Collingwood and surrounding areas it's just a, fa- a fact of living in Melbourne in this era versus that we've all become nicer people more hospitable yeah a bit more, more used, welcoming you know interacting with people from other clubs or lesser clubs in the case of Collingwood yeah um, I couldn't I wanted this pod to not be me just throwing barbs at Collingwood because I'm still salty but alas it alas. probably will turn into that so there is a little mem- monument in front of us which uh basically gives a little bit of Collingwood history and the history of women in the game. Um, Collingwood only allowed women the vote, sorry, women the right to be full club members in 1982. Um, and that's not just a knock on Collingwood. That was probably an industry-wide problem, although I haven't done the check on that. Um, but I guess that shows you how far forward AFLW has taken it. And even the common use of women as parlance rather than ladies. Like, So when you look at like the restroom signs around the ground, they all point you to the ladies' room. And so I think even that... Um, dialogue has changed significantly with the introduction of AFLW. So the final game, AFL game here, was in 1999 in round 22. Brisbane beat the Pies by 42 points. The leading goal kicker was Nigel Lappin, kick three, and Anthony Rocker kicked three for the home side in front of 24,000 people. But the record crowd here, Gordon, any any ideas on that one? It wasn't 99, it was a long way back. Yes, I'm going to say it's in the good old days, the dark days of the... Maybe the, just just the post depression, and looking around here, I'm thinking there's, we've still got the Sharon stand, which is quite large. Now, if we wrap that all the way around, 
and obviously none of the none of like the park stuff, none of like the playground areas in behind the uh, the little mini steps on the city side of the ground uh, would have been there back in the day. Yeah. So we're going to say something like 45,000 people with the tops. I have absolutely no doubt you Googled that. No. Because it was like 44,600 or something oh. against South Melbourne in the 40s. So mm. you pretty much ticked every box there. I'm mightily suspicious. I have been. A You're either smarter I, than you look or I very have, good at Google. I have been a historian of the game for a while now, mate. So. I like no, this, that's, what, that's why this club is so big as it is. Yeah. It's because during the Depression... Because they, didn't they do things like if you were on food stamps, you got in for free and like there was a lot of – like just, it was just like a working class vibe to the former Collingwood suburbs. And so yeah, this was the one thing that you'd come to. I mean, they've always been pretty good. Like they've been, when they've been bad, they've been horrific. But when they're not, they're usually being a finalist. Like a, in the finals, in a lot of grand finals, one – only a third of those, which is which is a deep ironing of the situation. Hope you're listening, Jacob Jusen. <laughs> but um, but yeah, if you were if you were a Collingwood factory worker, the only good thing about your life would be coming down and watching Coventry kick bags in the twenties and thirties, or the one good player that you have in the goal square that I'm there for. I guess the one thing that does hold up the working class feel is the fact that it's right next to a train line. So no matter where you are in the ground, you can pretty much hear them rattling. But I would say that all grounds are next to train lines because that's why they're built there but you can't hear them like no, you can't hear the trains at the mcg yeah you can how good is it how, my, my hearing's a bit dodgy have you never been to a shield game chef no. the g you can hear everything <laughs> you can hear planes taking off at the airport <laughs> all right um so a little bit of trivia going on from that first question so the most goals overall at this ground was 679 who was that gordon it's a question later on about stadium like the stadium and the stands He's not here. It has to be Gordon Coventry. It was Gordon Coventry. Leading goal kicker yeah, of all time. Yeah, yeah, So where's his stand? I don't know, because there's a Sharon, the Bob Rose, and the we're in the Ryder. Yeah. Yeah, there's no Gordon Coventry stand. Oh, there's, well, Eddie had. There's a Coventry end. Yeah, it's not really a stand. No, and it's got nothing to do with Collingwood. Eddie had. I don't even play there. Yeah, no, that's true. That's very strange. I would have thought the one bloke who deserves a stand would have been Coventry... And probably the Sharon stand. And don't they change these the end names that Eddie had based on who's playing? No, they're always like they are officially referred to as the Lockett and Coventry. I'm fairly ends, sure Essendon. But they'll they'll, they'll 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 relabel them on the on yeah, the day. For the Lloyd the Lloyd end. Yeah. yeah, but it's always been like that's the official names, as opposed to like City and mm. Doc. <laughs> yep, so there's no Coventry stand. Um, you've kind of cooked, not cooked a golden goose, but you've kind of got, if you get one, you're going to get all of these because he played the most games here as well. And he kicked the biggest bag here 17 against Fitzroy in 1930. Mm. 17 out of a total of 23. Out of goals, 23. goals for the game or goals for Collingwood? Just Collingwood goals, oh, okay. 23, yeah. I'm going to bank on Fitzroy not kicking that many. That I can't day. I remember how they lost, but I think they, I think they kicked 16 or so. Oh, okay. So he. Potentially outdid Fitzroy, which when you kick 17 is fair enough. You probably beat most sides with with that sort of haul. Um, who else used it as a home ground? Uh, Fitzroy. And the reason why I know that is because they were like the wandering club for oh, they a went very long time. Yeah. And it's had another name, this stadium. And it wasn't the Gordon Coventry Stadium because I would have mentioned that a minute ago. So the only other big bloke that deserves a stadium in inverted commas name has to be Jock McHale. Yeah, so it was for a time McHale. McHale Stadium. If you have to rename it, would you go 
Jock, or would you go Gordo? Oh, well, I wouldn't go Gordo. I'm not naming no, after you, Chad. Out, out of the two. <laughs> um, well, that's an interesting Because Jock as a player was serviceable, and then he was obviously an amazing no, I'd coach. I'd go Gordon. But in, do you name grounds after coaches or players? Players. Yeah. I, I mean, because I think that the game is still by and for the players. Well, I'd like, say it's for the people. Well, it's by the players for the people, yeah. not by the coaches for the people. No. The coaches are sort of the... Um, they're the facilitators. Well, they're kind of like the people moving the pieces in risk and probably getting beaten like I did on New Year's Day. Yeah. But... Are uh, people moving the pieces in risk players? Well, no, I would say the players are the ones on the board. They're the figurines. But they don't, then you're saying the players have no volition or free will. They don't in risk, but they do in footy. And Gordon Co- Coventry showed that over a number of years. I dug that into a hole. That was terrible. <laughs> wow, we. So the February Blues. I reckon this is a bit of a it's a bit of a weird patch in the sporting year. Because I find like after the tennis and like the height of the test summer, it's kind of like driving off the edge of a cliff. It's not because that would be a massive disrespect to AFLW, which is obviously a brilliant thing. But there is definitely just this sort of window. Um, You go from sports saturation and freedom and sunshine and like you don't have to go to work, you can have business if you want. It's like it's proper school holiday stuff. And then obviously school goes back for the kiddies and we have to go back to work. We work, we work the whole way through, but the regu- like the collective we, the people's people, they all go back to work and then you realise, oh, it's another year, the, the rat race is about to begin. And you do have those February blues, mm. much like Tuesday blues, I think as well. It, like, it, is, it is a macro version of the midweek blues. Well, I'm heavily, The weekend's yeah. a little bit in the middle of the weekend, though. Yeah. The other weekend's too far away. I'm heavily with you on the Tuesday thing. Mm. Monday is like, cool, we can, we can do Monday. We're refreshed. We're reinvigorated by our Sunday, by the meal prep we did, by the washing. But to, and then people are we like, very different Wednesday's Sundays. hum day. I'm like, no, nah, once you, like, Wednesday, so if I get through this, then it's like end of Thursday. Like, I can just have some beers. Like, it's Friday. It's one more day. So, yeah. like, the psychology of the week is an interesting thing. This is a huge tangent. Oh, yeah. um, but good. I do find that, yeah, February... You kind of just have a little bit of a lull. And it, to me, the other thing that I, I mean, I got back from the north and was like, oh, BBL has not finished yet. No. <laughs> um, which I guess is a really interesting question because, like, for me, I think I've almost got to a point where I just don't care anymore. So, everyone's getting really obsessed with caring about BBL. Do we have to care? Just to say it's just an exhibition. Because does anyone, is anyone sitting at home knowing what the table is? Like, I know what the table is because I'm a nuffy and I want the stars to win because I want Maxwell to succeed in everything he does in life. <laughs> but other than that, it doesn't really matter. There's, there is, as much as they want to try and solidify and ionise this tribalism around this game, cricket in Australia is very state and country focused because just that's just the history of it. So we're so used to being really impassioned about how the test team does and how to some extent the one day team does and how the state teams do if you're a proper cricket nuffy. We let we care less about franchise cricket. It's fun, we'll watch the highlights. It is it's like the in, it's like the basketball for cricket. It's the it's the clippable, Instagram shareable, let's do funny tweets, shit posting and like the shit Photoshop memes, all that stuff. But no one's actually going like, oh well 
but if we don't win the next two games, we're going to be knocked out of the finals. Like, there's very few people who, who are that invested in this as a competition. Mm. So why the focus on it? I mean, like, it's fair. just on. It's just yeah. on in summer. I would never watch it to be invested in a team. I watch it for entertainment. Yeah. So maybe that is the inherent purpose. I guess the question then is what does a sport lose when no one actually is involved or engaged in the result as such? That's, I feel like that's quite a new phenomenon for the Australian sporting market. It is, it is a bit strange. And I wouldn't say no one's in... Like, people still turn up. People buy it. Like, people are walking around in, in the kits. Like people wearing buckets on their heads, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is the buckets on their heads. It's obviously a commercial <laughs> issue. But, like, there, is, there, are, there are a small percentage of people who are invested. But it's... It is auxiliary cricket. It's an, ex, it's an exhibition each night of power hitting and poor bowling. But if that's it then, well, to, then my question is, if that's what it is, it doesn't need to be the length it is because it then takes away from the cricket where the result is something of, you know, that matters to people. So I kind of wonder whether, like, okay, surely that's just a case for it to be shorter if it is just this gangbuster of entertainment. You would have thought so, and especially because the best players can't play anyway because the season's so long. Yeah, it overlaps, that's the thing that, it overlaps yeah. the fixtures. Like, you have Root and, was it Butler? Mm. Who, was it, who were at the Sixers who are now in the West Indies playing test matches for England? Yeah. So they were there at the start, but they're not there. It just, things like that, Maxwell and Stoinis missing that chunk where we saw the Stars play, um, along with Hanscom and Zampa. Like, it just... There's too many sections of it where it feels gutted. Mm. And I just think that that detracts from it. So, because, yeah, lengthening it, great. But then you get park cricketers, essentially, playing in what is an entertainment product, which, to be honest, takes away from the, the ability of it to entertain. Absolutely, yeah. And then you're left with no one's emotionally invested in the result. No one's particularly entertained by, I mean, I know you sledged a few blokes off, but, like, no one's really entertained by watching some great cricketers at the MCG in front of 20,000 people. So make it shorter and make sure it doesn't clash with the one-day series. Which well, is kind of what we've said before. But Maxwell did come back. He did. And now I reckon you would support Glenn Maxwell if he was a heavily corrupt banker. No, I wouldn't. Because okay. Glenn Maxwell wouldn't do that. All right. Yeah. Well played. I wondered how you deal with that one. Um, was this the best short-form innings of the summer? No. It was 82 off the... Oh, the summer. Sorry. I, actually, I was going to say of his career. And I was like, of his career? Definitely come not. On. Stop preempting my questions. 82 off 43... Uh, in true fashion, he's a very orderly man. Six sixes, four fours, striking at 190. What did you make? But are you okay? Has your heart rate reduced adequately? I've watched the the replay of that of his particular innings four or five times already. What, highlights or whole replay? No, the whole replay. KO Sports, shout out. You're feeding my addiction. 43 balls? Hmm. They, did they put it in one package? No, no. You just start at the oh, ninth right. over and you watch the rest of that innings. Oh, Okay. <laughs> It's entertainment product, mate. Um, it's a bit like watching the same movie. Over, like, I watched Harry Potter again last night, but I know how it ends, so it's not quite as exhilarating each time it gets marginally less. No, because it's, no, it's like watching Pulp Fiction a bajillion times, because Pulp Fiction is a work of art, as was that innings. That's, that's a much better analogy. And, uh, how many times have you watched Pulp Fiction? 20. Oh, okay. I've watched it three, so I reckon that means you've spotted some things that I haven't noticed, but different, <laughs> different conversation line. <laughs> um... Everything about that innings was just Maxwell at his best. And so he has it. Maxwell, I think, is at his best when he has enough of the portion of the innings to make a true impact on the game. So batting him at seven in an ODI is risky because he may face three overs. He may face, if we're, you know, four for 50, he may face half the innings. But 
you know, he needs to have enough time to make an impact, but he doesn't want to be there too early because then the risk of him getting out is higher. So that was perfect. He came in at the, at the midway to the ninth, ninth over. Beautiful. And then it was Maxwell is at his best when he just stands still and lets his freaky hands do all the work, which is exactly what he did. So when he's, at, when he's in, in the middle of a slump, he's second-guessing, he's trying to throw the ball off their line by doing freaky stuff around the crease, all of his fancy, funky footwork. But when he's at his best, he just goes, you're not good enough to get me out. doesn't matter where you put this ball, I can put it wherever I want. And he proceeded to do that. And even at that last over, everyone was going, oh, uh, Dwarshus bowled really poorly. And I was like, no, nah, I didn't. Like, he bowled some, in, some full-length balls near his pads. But Max was like, his arc was like inside out, then hitting it straight back over his head. Usually inside out will go over cover or extra cover. He's gone, no, straight. Straight over middle stump down the bowler's end, straight into the side screen. And then even ones where he goes to play a, a hook shot on a slow MCG wicket realises he's already threw his shot too early, checks his shot about a quarter of the way through, and then rotates his wrist. So he plays like a hook scoop and hits it for six over like where first slip is. That's obscene. Just freaky, freaky stuff that Maxwell does at his best. And then he went on to proceed to just expertly captain the, the uh, fielding innings, take an, a massive grab, claim a very important wicket. He's, an, he's the best all-round cricketer in Australia by far, and... He should, and I hope he does, captain our one-day side in the next World Cup. I don't think he will. I, I think there's a fair chance he will because Smith won't play, and Warner won't play. Well, especially they won't now. be captain either. And they can't, they can't be captain Smith either. Smith has been for an extended period from being captain. Yeah, and Finch may not make the side. Woohoo! Early bold call. Mm. I guess for the bowler there as well, it's, kind of, it's pretty hard to bowl to a bloke where the only thing that he can't hit for six in theory, is a Yorker. Obviously well, even then, though, because they were somewhere, the Yorkers were, they weren't, they weren't exact Yorkers. But if you take a step out of your crease, a Yorker becomes a low full toss. Exactly. And he just punched three of those into space <laughs> midway through his innings anyway. Pretty hard. Yeah. Don't, don't fancy that at all. But again, I think that just serves as a reminder of what BBL and Stoinis, and I know I put this in the show notes, made 81 the match before against mm. the Heat. So I guess that that's a really, and I think the Stars are a particularly afflicted by those players moving away because they have probably not as good a depth as some of the other sides, perhaps. And as you know, if it's an entertainment product, it's not about depth. The Stars, obviously, it's because it's salary capped and, yeah, there's caps on overseas players and all these other things. So the Stars go, no, let's get homegrown talent that we can afford to have. They want to play together because they're all mates, and they are. They've got the big snine, big show, weird zamps. They want to hang out together. They want to play together. Even Petey, Petey Hands. And then they all go play for Australia. And then the, Mel- the Melburnians, the true cricket fans who, who, who frequent the MCG, that's where cricket is centred in Melbourne, are robbed of their entertainment of the BBL. And then they'll turn their backs on it. And they have. Because even, even in that innings, there's only about twenty or 30,000 there to watch it. Yeah. And it was probably the best limited overs innings in the summer. Mm. So, remarkable. Now, before we move on from the summer and, and the uh, February blues, I think we have a new contender for, for at least Melbourne's sport of the summer. Is that the basketball? No, it would be basketball. Yeah. So this is like, that's the only consistent, competitive, high-quality product going on at the moment. That lasts the distance? That lasts the distance. The NBL is everything the BBL wants to be. So it is clippable, it is entertaining. But when the BBL does things like, let's have the Crossy Demons be back, let's at, uh, at Marvel Stadium or 
you know, let's have all this like in, in-ground entertainment and music in between deliveries. They're trying to replicate basketball. That is where that happened first. Mm. And so when you go to the BBL, you get a little bit annoyed by it because your preferred cricket experience is, I want to watch cricket. I like cricket is meant to be in some, in most ways, relaxing. And then it's the excitement will peak and I'll go with it and I'll get excited and I'll come back down again. Whereas basketball is, is MTV. It is, it's noise and it's cheerleaders and it's dancing and it's lights and it's fire and it's whatever. Duncan. Yeah. And it's Duncan and hidden threes and everyone going mental for an hour. And then everyone having, and you can, you can sustain that for an hour. Can mm. you sustain it for three hours? Probably not. Yeah, it's a, I think that's, I mean, I noticed that having gone to the NBL earlier in the year. I think that it, you feel more at home with that environment around you watching that than you do at the cricket. Mm. Cricket, after like, you know, half it's an hour cold. of stuff, you're it's a bit cold. like, oh, can we stop with the clapping sticks now, kids? Mm. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm a particularly cynical old man, but you still get that feeling. And in terms of length, BBL and 2020 cricket is much closer to baseball than it is to basketball. So if you want to replicate entertainment systems and, and like the peaks and troughs of, of, an, of an innings, then replicate that at baseball. Well, they kind of, they tow both lines. There is that kind of, there is the old era of, of you know, you, you Kelsey and Dave's type followers. And then there's also a, a younger group of the, the tweeters and the memers and whatever come out through that. So that's, that's the melting pot to time reflect. Mm not try and jump on something that you're not because you're not a basketball product. Unless you play 5-5. Five five. And that's probably also the problem they've got with an elongated season and more yeah, more players to fill when teams are poached is that basketball is a highlights fest because it's five, they're five, your five best players against their five best players for the predominance of the game as opposed to having, oh, it's going to be our 22 mid-tier T20 hitters versus... Another twenty-two, depending on which day it is, depends on who plays in them. Agree. Watch this space in NBL, and especially now that the A League has basically gone into insignificance. It has. They, they yeah. will be. They will be the summer sport in Melbourne for a very long time. Big call. My final little question is why the BBL doesn't just have the once around season, but then play best of three finals. Would that concept work in in cricket? Do you think? Yeah. Like well, best of three semi-finals. That's how we used to play our one-day series, our triangular series. Yeah, and we used to play best of three finals. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know why you wouldn't do that with the semis in the final. Incentivize making it for the franchises that get there. Mm. More attendances, you definitely... So you get, you know, the home, the home field advantage. So game one, go away, game two, game three again at home. Um, and then it adds that dynamic of against three. If you something goes horribly wrong for for you in game one, how do you alter that for game two? I think it adds a different set of dynamics that you don't often see in cricket. And I think you then get like the teams that are playing really good cricket play more games, which then makes makes the quality of the competition overall higher. And that's what nine games added to the end of the season, which in terms of what we've already done to lengthen, mm. is that's not much. No, no that's, a, that's a really good shout. Um, but plenty of food for thought, I think, for that yeah, competition. Yeah, deeply ironic there that uh, two blokes here said that BBL has no importance in their lives to spend probably 20 minutes chatting about it so maybe they're doing something right. maybe it has some importance to me I don't know a bit like Netflix
So moving on from cricket and to the reason we are sat here at this lovely old ground, although my bum is getting a little bit sore on this hard wooden seat. So what have you made of the early part of the AFLW season, Gordon Hunter Meredith? For all the concerns about the quality dropping off, it's been quite good. I think the, the quality has improved. And, we, and it, always got, it was always going to, we've had this conversation a couple of times now where this, the new talent will come through this town has been through the talent pathways and, of course, they're going to be better. Like It's going to be pretty hard for the, for the competition to get worse as it gets older and, and, and progresses through its natural stages of development. Uh, what I am concerned about is the way it's being treated by the AFL in the sense that it had a pretty soft launch. It always does. It, kind of, it, it always does, but like the first year, obviously, it was the, the big hype around it being the first year and we've finally done it. Yes, we've given women the game that they've always deserved which wasn't actually the case but you gave them a chance well done AFL and then the second year they got a little bit lax and then the third year you were on your way to work one day and you realised oh actually the AFL launches on today oh picked up, popped up my Twitter feed but there was no preamble to that there was no pre-season hype even when the big trades went and the players got poached to go play the new clubs the Kangas and the Cats there wasn't that much hype around the fact that they'd gone there or what what, how to influence your club's chances or what you're going to get back in return or any of that. So all the hype that they do during the men's game, it wouldn't be that hard for AFL to replicate that. Just have people on. And it's like AFL.com.au controls that. You control your own narrative. So make sure that you're hyping up this mm. game. And there are a few things that have been mentioned by other people that I think are worth picking up. Like So the separate app and not having the W results on the AFL app. The, the accessibility or visibility of it on afl.com.au, you kind of often have to go to the separate map center slash website rather than using the same features that are used for the men's game, which I just think makes it harder for people to find mm. unnecessarily. That's, and I think that it's that phase where it's almost like, I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's budget. It's certainly not. It shouldn't be budget. Or just like an acceptance that they're not going to cut through in January when tennis is on. But even the restrictions that mean there's only one, the, the clubs are only allowed to play one preseason game. Mm. Against against another, and I, and this came up in an interview I did with um, George and Anscorn from North, where they basically had to play. Col they played a trial game against Collingwood, but they had to have all of these things going on, like coaches on the ground and the game stopping at certain points every so often for the AFL to allow that exercise to go ahead, which just seems a little bit, I don't know, heavy-handed. Like I would much rather just say. Let these clubs actually prepare properly, play a couple more matches. So the only reason why they can't do that, though, is that they have to pay them properly as well. So the reason why they get around that, it, the reason why they want that to happen and only have the one preseason game, because it means that the AFL go, well, then this is your allotted workload for the year. This for, therefore, this is why we've paid you X amount. Whereas mm. if you give them a proper lead-in with, you know, four preseason games, mm. then suddenly that workload's increased and the AFL would have nothing to stand on to say, no, no, you can only get paid your yeah. 25K plus endorsements. Um, the other thing that I think is, it's not an AFL thing, but it is a positive for me that I think the Herald Sun, the Age in particular, the two Melbourne papers picked it up really quickly once the tennis faded out. Um, and it's pretty much been back page or the majority, like it's taken up a good chunk of the, probably 30%, I reckon, or more of the sports section, most sort of Friday, Saturday, Sundays, which I think to me, and I don't have any sort of data to support this, but that felt like an upping of coverage from previous years. I don't know whether that's correct or not. No, and, I, and definitely, definitely I feel definitely like it's better taken up by them. And I think also people are now, well, definitely the journalists and the sports journalists that, like, that follow these beats are a bit more informed. So we've slipped away from the stories that are 
by nature, like, oh, let's talk to a dual sport player, let's do that. Now there's so many that it's not really, that's not really a story. But So now they're finding proper stories mm. that are actually compelling as either human interest or sporting stories and actually getting to the, 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 getting to the good narratives that are there in this competition, albeit only for eight weeks. Yeah, and I think that's probably the thing. I mean, I think in the landscape, if you look at how those pages change, they flick very quickly with the times. Mm. They follow the beat. So they follow the Australian Open. That goes away. Tennis is probably not going to get a huge mention for the next eight, nine, ten months. Yeah. Um, and so that's how it works. I, I just think it is, yeah, disappointing from an AFL, AFL perspective that, again, season two, season three, we didn't get that real groundswell of ability or sorry knowledge that it's happening which kind of just meant it snuck up on you a little bit and that first sort of weekend you were like oh and then even not having the friday opener having the saturday night yeah. opener i very much almost got on a train to geelong friday night thinking that the opener was friday night because yeah. of course the opener is friday night why would it not be why would it not be and then but I, also because if you build it at opener and then you have another game playing like an hour later in adelaide not really an opener. it's not really the same opener no like, it's not like the Thursday night AFL Open of Richmond Carlton. It's the only game. Everyone knows it's happening. Everyone watches. So that in itself was a little bit weird. Um, I guess question for me is whether I bandwagon North. It's a little bit hard because they're Tassie-based predominantly. They only play two games in North. Also, you can't bandwagon the best team that comp. That has been made to be the best team. <laughs> That's like saying, would you ever bandwagon GWS? Um, because no. they are, they are the... AFLW version of the GOS AFLM team. But depends, it depends whether you apply AFLM history to the AFL women's clubs. No. Or whether you look at them as... No, this, this, this club got invented this year and the AFL gave them all the best players and now they're dominating. I don't think, they gave, I don't think the AFL quite gave them. They created a set of rules that allowed them to create that, a pretty that good that are That promoted... And almost enforce the fact that players would have to change clubs and would have to go to these two new clubs so these new clubs didn't suck. But I guess one of the things, and this has kind of been alluded to already, that is a problem is the conferences are just super lopsided. Now, I, I saw that and I went, oh, well, they've obviously mucked up here. They haven't. The thinking behind it, as in like having conferences is the muck up, but not which teams are where. Yeah, yeah, go on. Because I, if you just went one, two, three, four all odd numbers in one conference, all even numbers in the other, based on the order they finished last year, that's how they did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, they went, oh, well, these will be the good teams again, these will be the bad teams. Like, there's no way to predict which teams will be good and bad. Well, and it's particularly difficult in AFLW, so I understand. Especially when you, yeah, there's high turnover and you, and you enforced massive list changes and cross-pollination across each of the clubs. Cross-pollination. <laughs> so it's really hard, hard to predict that. So the only mistake they made was having conferences in the first place. Well, I would also say that they should have put the Kangaroos in the other conference, just looking at the teams, surely. But how? How would you know? Because the Kangaroos were always going to be... Well, at the point that they did that, I think it always looked like the Kangaroos would be the stronger of the two. But based Colin, on Collingwood's always had a good list up until this year, probably. and Done rubbish. Done rubbish. So you never know. That is one of the joys of AFLW, seeing Collingwood and Carlton get routinely thumped as early in the year as February. Warms the cockles of my heart. I do think it is, and yeah, okay, maybe hard to predict, but the results so far in games between teams that have, oh, yeah, in every, cross-conference games conference have all a, been won by Conference A, yeah. all of them, um, which I, and that shows hugely on the ladder. Like there's, there's basically every team in Pool A has a win. There's eight wins in that pool in total, only two wins in Pool B. Hmm. So that, I mean, yeah, hard to predict how teams are going to front up. 
But I guess that is the problem with having conferences and the argument for just going around once and then having semifinals and a grand final. Because um, I do think that there's a likelihood now that you'll get – like Fremantle have really dramatically improved mm. on previous years in what you know you can see. Um, two wins, good percentage, scoring pretty freely. Um, they may end up being a significantly stronger team than one of the teams that makes the finals from the other pool. Are you getting into a position where you could end up with a third and fourth that are stronger than the one and two that end up getting there? Potentially, yeah. Now, I know if you say... And, and they're also not the only sport that has this problem. No, and it's an inherent... It happens in hockey. It happens in all of the sports yeah. where you set... Well, pools. Super Rugby is the big one where that happens, where the top... Like, the New Zealand conference is... is each country has its own conference, and the five New Zealand teams are better than every other team in the competition. But you can only have three New Zealand teams in the finals mm. based on how it works. So, yeah, as I said, like... Once you commit to conferences, these things always happen. It happens in the NBA where the West is better than the East and then that flip-flops and whatever. But the other problem is that like, you don't play for one once, so that you have an uneven draw, and then you have conferences. So it just, it just makes a mockery of the whole, of the whole thing, especially because it's not what they've done previously. And it's only 10 teams. The reason for conferences is because... You have 30. You have 30 teams and you have abhorrent travel schedules and you're playing every night. Yeah, because it's like... Five hours, what, five or six hours from one coast of the America to the other? Yeah, and it makes sense in Super Rugby because you're playing against teams in New Zealand and then against teams in South Africa. Yeah. That's significant travel time, so it makes sense to play them But these aren't even geographical conferences. No. Because there's one trip to Perth in AFLW, one one trip to Brisbane and one trip to Sydney and one trip to Adelaide and then there's five teams. There's no need for conferences. Well, and I guess Hobart now, but I mean, it's a stone's throw from Melbourne. Put on the spirit of Tasmania, I say. I guess the next question, and this is something that I guess comes up a little bit every year, um, is about how the AFL responds to trolls and whether they should respond to trolls. So Channel 7 put out an ad that had the captain essentially responding to some of this vitriol, which then got pulled down. Um, and I guess my question is, should you ignore it? Should you engage with it? Um, when people are still making the argument that it's too low scoring because teams are not scoring enough points, but then you point out that the games are nearly half the length. Like when you keep having to make that point, I just feel like responding is a bit of a, it's a bit of a wasted waste of time. It's an interesting way. So it wasn't the AFL; it was Channel Seven that, no, said, that did, did I say this. That? Yeah, you did say this. Yeah, so I'm yeah, just yeah. reiterating yeah, yeah. in case anyone missed that. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not we you know. So it's interesting from Channel 7's perspective that this is how you try and sell your product. In terms of selling a product, very few advertisers will say you're a dickhead for not agreeing with our premise because yeah. then they'll go. I'm not a dickhead, and now I hate you even more. It's a very weird, like, very antagonistic way to try and sell your product. And so I don't understand what they were trying to get at. And if you, and if you take it into the AFL-M context, they're not going to be going, when Gold Coast plays Carlton at Metricon, they're not going to be saying, oh, all you haters that think that this game is rubbish, here's two blokes from each of the teams that says to defend themselves. That's going to be like, the footy's on if you're going to watch it, watch it, and if you're not, you're not. Like, it, don't do it like that. That's not on them to to like to reverse sell it or to like try and get like that's not how advertising works. That's how promotion works. Actually, if they had to come out with an ad and just said like this season of AFLW is going to be better than any other season of AFLW and have it just hype and highlights and make it look like it's interesting, people might actually have a crack and actually watch it. So it's weird execution. And then if you look around, people have been teetering on the lines of other things. So AF24, uh, the sports media agency, did a video with uh, Darcy Vecchio 
And I essentially talked, to, I actually had a proper conversation about it. Like, how does this make you feel? How do you respond? Does it happen very often? Like, what do you think should be done about it? And then it's actually a robust discourse, right? And it's a robust discourse, as opposed to an ad that says, if you don't watch this, you're an idiot, essentially. So very strange execution by mm. Channel 7. I understand, I, I can see how that got, I, I can see how the pitch got approved. Like, oh, let's, you know, mean tweets is a thing on talkback shows. And yeah, all but that also kind of stuff. there's a big difference between that, that and talkback, talk like. Yeah, exactly. No, it's an ad. So it has to sit by itself. People are going to watch it out of context and they're not expecting it. So it's, it's a very strange execution, which, and from Channel 7, not the AFL. If it was on the AFL, I would have almost been like, well, that's classic AFL. Like, who would have, who would have thought? The AFL stuff's up again. But also, like, I think the point about just promoting what is positive to promote earlier, like, you've got people, I don't know, Nina, Nina Morrison did her ACL, but when you've got kids like that, that's what you should be hyping up mm. from draft day right up until day one. So people get this sense of, and then, like, using the blatantly clear evidence that those players have an impact and that's like Monique Conti being the best player on field in the grand final as a first year player yeah. Chloe Malloy winning Collingwood's BNF and the rookie award in mm. the same year and basically being their like obviously by the award their best player mm. and they're all first year players so use that evidence to beef the competition up and that's from a channel 7 it doesn't matter who's doing the marketing yeah. like fall back on that and then fall back on like the Freo Lions game which was super high scoring Freo kicks what, 10 goals in essentially just over a half of AFL men. So they've kicked like, what, a 20-goal game? And you're telling me that that's not good enough. You know, um, Carlton versus the Crows was, again, similarly high-scoring, swings and roundabouts. And, like, you're always going to get, and I know Blacktown seems to have this problem every year where there's a game that's affected by thunder because it happened in season two. Mm. But, like, you get games in AFLM that are wrecked by the weather. Like, that are, like, put... They played during yeah, a hurricane in Cairns. Like, put the dream team... Like on the field, the best AFL men's team in history ever against another dream team. You could make it. You could call it AFLX if you wanted. But they're not going to make it a spectacle. If AFL it, extreme. If it if it pisses AFL extreme, AFL climate change is happening. Like, like it's not going to make it a spectacle if it's that wet and that horrible and the wind is blowing sideways. It's a little tangent, but anyway. Um. So in terms of the AFL, Kirby Fenwick wrote a column for the Guardian talking about whether the AFL can do more to moderate social pages to protect players, which came up in journalism. Um, there's a court case going on at the moment about the responsibility that publications have to moderate their comments um, on articles. And I think it's, that's just a really interesting thought point because I don't know whether it's feasible. It is feasible, I reckon. Yep. As a publisher, you're creating, you're giving, you're creating the environment where these comments are given space. So you are, and, and if they live on your site, you are publishing them. You are the publisher of that space. So you can just say, do we, do we believe it's appropriate for us to give airtime to these comments? Do we think that it's fair and a reasonable debate or do we think it's hate speech or trolling or complete waste of time or insensitive or whatever? And then all you do is just pull down the comment stream. Mm. Just turn off feedback. And you just go, you, the public had the opportunity to have a reasonable discourse. They found that opportunity. You don't get the opportunity anymore. Next, next article will give you the we'll give you, you give a fresh chance each time you publish something, a video, a tweet, or whatever. But then, if if the great unwashed fail to live up to their end of the bargain, then they lose their rights. And that's the way it should be done. So the AFL should be able to just pull things, pull comments off. You don't have to pull down the actual piece. It's just be like, no, if this is getting unfair vitriol, then and they do it, and it's a PR thing. 
if there's a massive blunder that happens and suddenly all the, all the comments are, oh, why don't you do this and why is this bloke getting rubbed out for four weeks or why is someone missing out on AFLW Grand Final, or suddenly you can't comment. Suddenly you can't comment on this article. You can't comment on this. Are you talking database. socials or website? All of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can disable comments on Twitter. You can disable comments on Facebook. You can Responses disable comments. to tweets. You yeah. can disable them. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, power's in, the power's in your hand as a publisher to allow discourse to happen or to just be outward messaging. I think and, it, the, yeah. and you can toggle that as required. Yeah, and The Guardian do that. Like in different publications do it on some of their articles where they just don't have comments on yeah. at, ever, at all because they know that there'll be an element of vitriol attracted by whatever the piece is. Mm. And they kind of know before they... They obviously plan out when they publish that content stream what the response is going to be, whether they're going to allow comments, etc. Um, and almost like preempt what the usual response to a certain type of piece of content would be. So any final thoughts, takeaways, feelings, emotions about AFL Women's thus far? Be something that we pick up again and again over the next eight weeks. Yeah, I just hope that we that everyone gets on board with it. So I think the only thing I'm scared about the rest of this AFLW season, the AFL needs to make sure that they can market this to everyone because that's how the league survives. Because if we if we max out who's going to watch, come watch AFLW now, the room for growth isn't there, and then they won't do the things that they're going to do. Like increase pay, longer 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 season, and, and and virtually give professional athletes the reasonable chance of making a actual living out of playing the sport full time. That's my concern. Yeah, and I think my concern... When you close the door on it. Yeah, and it's a similar, similar line. It's just the fact that we're, what, a year away from having a 14-team comp and we don't know what that's going to look like mm. at all. Like, and no one really has any idea of the framework. So there's a very sort of year-by-year, one-game-at-a-time sort of attitude, see how it goes, rather than that forward planning, which... Smacks of a little bit of, um, I guess, unwillingness to just back it and go. And I think that does, to an extent, rub off on people that are observing it. Because mm. if they're not going to back their own product, what does that say to people that they're wanting to get involved with it? Yeah. It then feels a little bit lukewarm when they're saying, come and watch it, because they won't commit to the long-term future of the game or saying what that's going to be. Mm. And as much as taking it a game at a time as a well-worn AFL or football cliche, no club actually operates like that. No, no club operates and then reacts to what happened the week before. They have a, they have a macro plan they follow. Yeah. And it seems like the AFLW and the AFL don't have that when it comes to this, which is a So... Sri Lanka and Australia, the wash-up of the test summer. Now, I didn't actually watch an awful lot of this, um, which is rather frustrating, but um, it did... Well, it was the pinnacle of what was... Was it a long summer? I don't know. Was Definitely it? wasn't the pinnacle either. It wasn't the pinnacle. It was, it was just the, the end. end. It was just the end. Pinnacle is the wrong word for an English graduate to use that. Um, but what did, you, what did you make of the series, Gordon? It, we all came into it thinking... Foot, cricket Nuffies came into it thinking, maybe this will be a contest. Maybe we are that bad. And maybe Schlenker are okay and they'll challenge us. And they didn't. We're not that bad. We're not that bad. We're not lower tier, almost tier two cricket nation. We are still one of the big four. We can, we can hang out with. And as you said, a couple of things go wrong, a couple of things go differently during that uh, four test series against India. We come out with a drawn series, we come out with a series win. We didn't, we went down 2-1. Mm. 
in a four-test series. Not diabolical. The, the numbers flatter us, but not diabolical. This one was 2-0, but it could have been 6-0. It could have been... We didn't matter, it wouldn't matter how many tests we would have played. We would have kept beating. We would have, we would have won them every single time. They had batsmen jumping away from Mitch Starr, who wasn't even bowling that well. Yeah. Like, the, 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 the cratering class is ridiculous. Yeah, and I think... I think the thing that you got to, and I think you're right. In Australian conditions, mm. we are going to challenge or beat South every Africa, team, England, but we're going to beat everyone below five. So New Zealand down. Mm. Although New Zealand next summer will be really interesting, but the Sri Lankas, the Pakistans, we're always going to beat them. Here. We might have some trouble with them away, as we've seen, mm. but we're not going to give up a series against Sri Lanka in Australia. Still, we're not at that point. No, and, and this is and especially when they don't know on tours anymore. So they came out, they played a. Well, they trained in the middle in a, in a centre wicket for a couple of days in Tasmania. Yeah, and let Curtis Patterson play his way into the team. Yeah, play his way into the team, plunder runs, and then uh, just proceeded to just cack it everywhere else. And so, yeah, there's no way that they're going to come. I suppose the other point there too is that yeah, perhaps we aren't as bad as what we thought we were against India. India are by far the best Test team in the world, and they actually played good Test cricket. Overseas, which is what no one does anymore. So that's very that's very impressive. What with, India, with a team that was prepared for the conditions, and what India did was very impressive. They didn't play how India usually plays. It wasn't a dominating performance. It was a grinding performance. They were willing to they were willing to curb their egos for the sake of getting the job done, and they did that. And then Sri Lanka are as bad as we thought they were, even though they kind of put up a fight against New Zealand. New Zealand again isn't India. So they came over here and they were found out. So I think it just shows that, yeah, not the, the apocalypse isn't coming from Australian cricket. We're no, not going to be as bad as the lowest The thing is, like, this is the, this is the lowest ebb because Smith, Warner, Bancroft now become available. So we have a full contingent of players, mm. um, which means that, yeah, I know there's a question later on to be asked about how this, this summer will be viewed in 20 years' time. But yeah, this is this is it. Losing to India in Australia was the two-one is the lowest step. That's not a bad lowest step if you're going to have one. Um, as as a sort of alarmist as we were. So from Sri Lanka, did we really learn much? Uh, nope, not really. We learned that all first-class cricketers can make runs when the conditions are in their favour. Uh, we can. We learned that all high-class bowlers will take wickets against opponents that are of lesser class than them. Uh, and we learned that. Our problems in decision making and a lot of our players' unwillingness to make runs when you have the chance shows. Like Harris, not not every test opener gets a chance to play against Schlenker at home. And he did not roll up the sleeves and go, no, I'm going to put those attacking shots away for a couple of overs and buckle down and make 100, then make a big 100, make 200. Like, just battle day. We, we, have a, a, we have a lot of players currently in that test setup that do not want to bat all day, and that is kind of the point of test cricket. That's what we're learning, I think, in short. So was there a bit of a where has this bloke been all summer about some of those those innings? Like, even the ones that weren't in the team? Not really. No. Like, Kawhi just one is, is more concerning than it is than it is affirming. Like, he didn't... He, he looked all out of sorts against India, and then he made one of the scratchiest hundreds you'll ever see in Test cricket against a side that was really struggling and then celebrated like he'd made a 100 against India. 
And like, yes, making 100 is a big deal and making 100 for your country is, is amazing and you should celebrate that definitely. But he's, that's not his first 100. He knows what it takes to make it at this level and to see that amount of release and that amount of almost uh, despair lifted off him is concerning to think that that's how much he was struggling beforehand. It's, it's, it's more affirmation that he was in a real rough patch and now he won't play test cricket again until he ashes. Yeah, and there's only that little bit of the Shield season. Well, he won't play because he's in the one-day squad. Which has been brought up. So how much water is there to go under the bridge still? Heaps. Well, I have I, There are no... As much as Ricky Ponting comes out and says uh, Lava Chagney is in uh, absolute lock for the Ashes, there are no locks to the Ashes, especially now that Smith and Warner are coming off surgeries. They're already in doubt and may not play the World Cup. Do you helicopter them in with no games for a year and a half? to go play an Ashes series in English conditions? I don't know. To me, that would be setting them up to fail. Mm. I don't know whether that's the best solution. Re- that's a really interesting one if they can't get the match practice under their belts in terms of what we do. Do you just back them and go? Or do you just say, well, maybe we are. I, my feeling is that they'll just pick them anyway. Well, you kind of have to because the, like, the record shows they are the best players and you go, you got, you got, we got a five-test series. Yeah. Hopefully, it only takes you one, one, test, one and yeah. a half tests to get it going. Yeah, but that's a very much a watch this space. Yeah, and so, the other, it, it will make for a person that absolutely loves Sheffield Shield. Duke Ball's come out now after the Big Bash break, which means these runs will be important runs in inverted commas, surely in terms of selection for the Ashes, which hopefully gives a bit more of a spotlight on the Sheffield Shield, which is when it's played, when everyone's available and it's played at its, at its peak, it is the best domestic competition in the world. So. Mm. So we spoke briefly about uh, Marcus Harris. Was Simon Cadditch right to question the fact that he played those BBL games between tests? Was that an impact on the way nah. that he played? It is difficult to switch between formats, but if anything, it would mean it would have meant that he would have performed poorly at BBL, not at tests. He just played four test matches and then played two BBL matches. Mm. He had he had two net sessions essentially. He had two simulated match situations net sessions where he had to play aggressively yeah which he does anyway like his real problem is that he tries to play aggressively when he doesn't have to he could go along at 70 in battle day as opposed to trying to go along at 90% and only bat for two sessions which is more or less what has happened all summer Mm. I mean he's thrown away a number of starts which originally looked oh he's getting starts and now it's kind of like oh he got 30 again and got out is kind of the thinking so that's definitely flipped around and he looks Unlikely, I would say, particularly if Warner plays, given they're similar players. Yeah, yeah. I've all, I, that's my belief anyway. That he's a, Harris is essentially a poor man's Warner if Warner plays, and then I think you have a bloke like Renshaw, maybe even Joe Burns, but more so Renshaw that have proven themselves in English conditions before. Renshaw's made a lot of runs in county cricket against bowlers that he will be facing in the English Test side. So I'd be leaning towards there, and he's a guy that will bat all day. We need that willingness, especially in English conditions where it gets tricky a lot and stays trickier for longer. I think that's the case for Patterson. Where you need to bat all day. In that, in that series, I think that's probably the biggest reason you want Patterson there. Mm. Um, so if we had a pre-summer aim, and we definitely set this on a pot of managing to find some players in the absence of the big two, did we actually manage to do that? I think we partly already answered that question. Maybe Travis Head? Oh, Travis Head was already a run scorer. But again, and Travis Head is... So we found some players, yes. Did we find those players in the right in the uh, right location of the batting lineup? Definitely not. 
So Travis Head should be batting at six. Yeah, we found an aggressive six. We found a, we found a guy who could really turn a game at six. Yeah, which is probably not what we needed. Well, we, and we have a we have a glut of those. We have Wade bashing runs for fun in lower order and Sheffieldshire. We have Maxwell doing Maxwell things. We have Head. There probably is room for Maxwell and Head, especially because Maxwell is a bit more versatile. So you could put fit Maxwell in at five, bat Head at six. But he's a six. Head's a that's he can only really play one role. He's a he's a counter puncher. But he's very much the Adam Gilchrist style of I'll hit my way out of trouble. I'm not there. To, I'm not there to really grind because he doesn't. He don't ever look comfortable to crease with Travis Head. It's like he's going to get out eventually, so he might as well make some runs beforehand, which is fine. That's his role. So other than that, Kawaja probably went backwards. Harris didn't really grab the opening spot by by both hands. Joe Burns made runs when it, when he needed to because that's any chance he got, but. Will we remember those runs? Are those the right runs? As other podcasts have said, will those runs count if they happen in Canberra against Serenka? Who, who knows? I know it's been said also it's about as much about the runs that you didn't make as the ones that you did. And I, yeah. think, I think that's quite a poignant and important point because I think that, yeah, the blokes that got runs are no, no lock, but I would say that someone like Harris who missed out hmm. is, is almost crossed unless he goes and makes a glut in the shield now. Um, yeah. depending on but so this is kind of the final question really when we look back what do we think of this summer in retrospect down the line the summer we remembered for the India test series alone mm. I mean I think the two tests against Sri Lanka will largely be forgotten as an afterthought yeah especially because no one went on and made like an Adam Voges double time like if that had happened you remembered it like you know oh what an amazing day for that 380 in Zimbabwe yeah Hayden that style. kind of thing yeah, yeah. Remember those things, but you don't remember the tests. Whereas we will remember the Perth game against Coley India, Holly yeah. Hundred, Australia win, and you'll remember the the series in in, in general. The mm. first time an Indian team and subcontinent team won a series over here. I think I'll just remember turning on the TV and finding that Chiteshwa Pajara was still batting. I think he's still batting. That's what you need. You need to get a bad day. But other than that, it has been. Unfortunately, a rather unremarkable test summer. Unremarkable. Like the, there were no blockbuster games. No, sometimes well, the, first, the thing is, it peaked early. The first two games were the best tests of the summer. Well, no, it, no, it had a, had a, it had a six-day peak. <laughs> the last day of Adelaide and, and the Perth Stadium test. Yeah, yeah I think that's a fair We had six game. days of good cricket at an international level all summer. And I think in 20 years' time, it'll be remembered a little bit as the summer that Warner and Smith missed because they tampered with a ball and this is how Australia did in their absence. Um, how that sort of... I don't think that should detract at all from the Indian performance and I hopefully, in what history remembers it, it doesn't because I think that that performance in itself was very, very significant um, for them. And I think that from a sort of a purely thing, like a memory thing, I think watching Pajara and Coley bat at the MCG is the sort of thing that you kind of will remember, hmm. you know, because that excitement that you get when Coley comes to the, the crease is very much what you would have gotten when it was a Bradman or a, or a Tendulkar yes. or a Lara. Um, and I think that that sort of once-in-a-generation player doesn't, doesn't come to these shores. It's, and the, the once-in-a-generation touring player in particular, when, you know, that opportunity is so rare, I think it's something that really is cherished and valued and I think that'll be one of the lasting memories of the summer. And it was a 3-2 Australian win across two series, which I know was pointed out by, I think, Pat Cummins. It was a little bit overly optimistic, but 
nonetheless. It's there <laughs> in paper and you can't argue with the scoreboard. So we will leave you there. We're going to maybe go have a kick of the footy or a coffee over in the gentrified suburb of Abbotsford slash Collingwood. Um, it has been a pleasure to come to you from Victoria Park. The birds are tweeting still. The commission flats are still there. And we've now got a glut of people kicking footies on the Oval, which is just beautiful. See you later.